That's exciting. You know, one thing I wanted to add to what Mark said is that the instructors in the night school, like Monday night is my night. I'm not here every Monday because I travel a lot, but when I'm in town, I minister on Monday night. So it's not all DVD. Uh, you get live instructions to a degree. You have more, of course, they have some DVD in night school. We have none in the day school. So it's a little bit different, but all those other things Mark was saying about the uh, closeness of the students and stuff is good. And when he said, uh, let me uh, ask uh, Gary if I'm correct, but when he said 35 students, he's talking about like the first year class. All together, well, when we had our pictures and I shook hands with them all, it seems like there was 100. <laughs> is there 100 in night school? <laughs> anyway, there's 70 or whatever. So it's, it's not just 35. That was the uh, first year class, but that's awesome. And we have a great time in night school, so good things happen. Oh, there's Mark. I didn't see, I was looking back here at the back. So is, how many do we have total in night school? Full-time, part-time, we have 90. 90. Okay, good. And this coming year, it'll probably be over 100. Yep. Amen. So that's awesome. And they've, they've done a great job with night school. It's really, really good. You know, I want to turn over to Luke chapter um, 16. I was there this morning and I ministered for just a few minutes on this and said some things about this parable with the um, unjust steward. And we're going to receive an offering again tonight. This is going to go towards uh, CBC and all the things we're doing. And I wanted to encourage you for just a moment out of this. And since I'd already given some of the background, well, then you've already got some of this uh, understanding and things. So we talked about this unjust steward who had stolen money from his master. His master said, get your books in order. If what I've heard is true, you're going to be fired. He knew it was true. So he started, he's kept stealing money, but instead of putting it in his pocket, he started putting it in other people's pockets as bribes. And here is the most unusual part about this whole thing is in verse eight. This is Luke chapter 16, verse eight. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. And I mentioned this briefly this morning that one of the reasons he got commended is because he finally understood that the real power of money isn't just for the present, it's for the future. Money can change your future. In the natural it can if you prepare and say most people, well, the reason most people have financial problems is because they get sucked in by this world and they want everything right now. So they pay, pay premium prices and they buy things and pay for them two to three times by the time they get through. If you would just cool your jets and like, for instance, a car, buy a used car that you could afford and save the money that you would be paying in a payment within one or two cars that you go through, you'd be able to buy your cars debt-free and save five to $10,000 interest. But people get sucked in because they're just, they want everything they can right now. And that's the deception of money. And, uh, it's, it's important to realize that you need to plan for your future. And if you would pay cash for things and not pay on credit, man, you would save lots of money, lots of money. You know, my wife and I don't even know how many years, but 10 or 15 years, we haven't owed anything, not for a house, not for a car, not for anything. And it doesn't take a lot of money to live when you don't owe anybody anything. It doesn't cost that much. 
It's a, if you were to add up how much you're paying for things on credit, and like, for instance, when you sign for a house, they'll tell you that you're paying two and a half, three times what the normal value is. If it's a $300,000 house, you're going to pay $900,000 by the time you're through. That is not good business. Thank you for the silence. <laughs> anyway, we talked about this, how that you need to recognize that money gives you power to affect your future if you use it correctly. And it gives you power and stuff. But here's the, here's the thing I was wanting to talk about tonight. This also struck me as really strange, is the attitude of this master. That the attitude of this master, he was so detached from his money that he could have a person stealing from him and he could find something to compliment them over. Think about that. What did you say, Lawson? That's right. Money wasn't that big of a deal to him. He could see somebody walking out the door with all his money and say, you know, congratulations. You're finally learning some things about how to steal properly. <laughs> this would be comparable to you having somebody break into your house and you're seeing them walk out with a pillow sack, a pillowcase full of all of your jewelry and everything and you, <laughs> you compliment them. Man, you are the best crook I've ever seen. You bypassed my security alarm. You did a great job. Some people think you can't do that because, see, we are, most people are so attached to their money and to things that they just, it, there seems like there's a string attached directly to your heart, to your wallet. And if somebody touches your wallet, man, they've touched your heart. You know, if somebody was to grab your wallet right now, if you were to, if I say, going to say, could I have your wallet and you hand it to me and then I walk out the door, you know what? Your heart would go with me. <laughs> you would wonder, what's he going to do? Most people are just dominated, possessed with money and with things. This master was so detached that this guy was stealing, who knows, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of stuff from him. And he was detached enough that he could find something to compliment this guy about and say, finally, you've learned some lessons about money. Most of us, that would never even cross your mind. But that's because this guy had learned something, and that is that, you know what? I'm going to say some things here. That this just goes over people's heads. It's like they, aren't, they don't even speak the same language. It's like I'm speaking a foreign language, but I pray that you ask God to help you to understand this. But money is just a tool. It's not a big thing. It's not that important. You know what's important? Is the blessing of God that produces money. You know, I actually used this verse today when he received the offering out of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse, or excuse me, what is it? Deuteronomy 8, 18. It says, but you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth. God doesn't give you wealth. God doesn't give you money. God doesn't have money. They don't use money in heaven. If you're praying for money, God hadn't got money to give you. And God's not going to counterfeit it. That's against the law. God doesn't give you money. He gives you power to get wealth. And then you have to take that power and do something. Set your hand unto something. He says he'll bless what you set your hand unto. If you set your hand to nothing, a hundred times zero is zero. 
And there's people that aren't doing anything. There's people that are sitting there and just praying and asking God to give them money, but they wouldn't do anything. They don't have any creative ideas. They aren't out doing something. They think, well, that would be, you know, me working. I just want God to give it to me. God doesn't give you money. He gives you the power to get wealth and the power to get wealth is the asset. That's what's important. And once you know that you are anointed and blessed by God to produce money, you can get to a place where money's no big deal. You don't worry about money. You don't worry if you lose something. If people steal from you, it doesn't matter because you know what? All they're doing is taking the thing that's being produced. They can't grab the real asset. The real asset is the ability to get money, the blessing to get money. You know, it goes back to like this old, um, I don't know what you call it, nursery rhyme or story about Jack and the beanstalk and the goose that laid the golden egg. What do you want, the golden egg or the goose? If you've got the goose, a person can steal your golden egg and who cares? I got plenty where that comes from, amen. And it's the same thing. Once you understand that God is your source and that you have been anointed by God and you have an anointing on you to produce finances, then people can steal from you. You can have something happen. Like a a good friend of mine, Bob Nichols, had two tornadoes and Clyde over his uh, property in Fort Worth, Texas, and he had an $18 million facility that in 45 seconds was reduced to rubble. It was everything gone. Most people would just be crying. Bob was out there. I looked on CNN, and he had on a hard hat, and they were interviewing him, and he said, God didn't do this. This is the devil, but God is going to give it back. We'll be twice as strong as we were before, and they were praising God. The next Sunday, all of the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, all of the newspapers and television things came to their meeting. He had about a 1,000 people or so in his church, and they had to go rent the Will Rogers Auditorium. And they showed up because they wanted to see this church that was just totally devastated. They lost everything. Everything that Bob and Joy had worked for for 40 years was gone. And they went... And, and one of the uh, newspaper articles said, we went to see people, we expected to see people crying and talking about how tragic this was. And it says they act like they won the lottery. They were running the aisles. They were shouting and screaming and praising God that God is good and talking about how that they were going to have twice as much as they did before. And guess what? They have about three times as much as they had before. They were able to build a brand new uh, auditorium, I mean, a brand new complex for their school with two gymnasiums in it. Everything is totally paid for. They have stuff that is more than twice as good as it was before. Because see, they didn't look at their things. They looked at God and the blessing of God. That's the asset. This man knew that he was blessed of God. And so because of it, he was detached from his stuff. It didn't matter because it was just stuff. You take that stuff, I'll get more stuff because I've still got the anointing that produced the stuff in the first place. You know, my wife and I went through this in 2002. We had the Haman fire and it burned 144,000 acres in Colorado. It started eight miles from our house and it got within one mile of our house and they evacuated us for two weeks. We were out of our house. And when they evacuated us, Jamie and I considered, you know, getting a U-Haul or doing some. All of our neighbors were loading up uh, trucks and things like this. And we just decided we'd take our pictures and our uh, documents that couldn't be replaced. 
And then we prayed over our place and commanded that that thing was blessed and we spoke our favor over it. And as we were leaving, Jamie says, I agree with you and I believe that we're blessed. But you know what? It's just stuff. She says, it's just stuff. And if we lost it all, we've still got God. We've still got each other. And she said, we had fun getting it. We'll have fun getting it back. And some of you haven't ever seen my house, but it's not a huge house or anything, but we built it. It's our dream house. I designed it. It's exactly what we want. And Jamie has so much stuff (laughs) that if we were to ever move, you'd have to have one moving van for her stuff and one moving van for the rest rest of the house. That woman has more stuff than any one person should ever have. And I mean, it's all special. It's from all over the world. But you know what? Our heart's not in the stuff. It's in the Lord who provided it in the blessing of God. And I just thought how blessed I am to have a wife that, I mean, we've got things that are important to us and yet she, you know, it's just stuff. That's awesome. That's the way that this man was. And this is the attitude of a person who has finally recognized that it's God who gives them power to get wealth. And you could reduce me. You know, I'm not confessing that anything bad is going to happen, I believe, for the blessing of God. But I am saying that if something was to happen and if I was to lose every asset that we've got, I just saw financial and I forgot what it is, but our assets altogether is 30-something million dollars of stuff that we have. And you know what? If I lost it all today, no problem. I'd get it back, and I'd get it back with interest. Because the Bible says if you catch a thief, he's got to restore sevenfold or give all of the substance of his house to repay. And I guarantee you it'd be the stupidest thing the devil ever did if he tried to steal from me because it'd cost him dearly. Amen. So, you know, I'm, I'm a steward of what we've got, but it's not the stuff that we have. It's the blessing of God. And you can reach a place to where money doesn't control you. It doesn't possess you. It doesn't dominate you. Amen. You know, Vicki gave that testimony today about this house. And God, I thought that was awesome, Vicki, about God saying, do you think this is the best I can do? <laughs> and now they've got something better. They've built their own home, a brand new home. And you know what? God has blessed them with more. And if something happened to that house, God will bless him with something else. God is El Shaddai, not El Chipo. He is not limited, amen. So I want to encourage you to let go of some of your stuff and act like you believe that God is your source. You know, this is why I believe that the Lord told us to give. God doesn't need our money. You know, there is one man over in Singapore who watches me every day on television. I've never met him I've emailed him, but uh, one of my guys, uh, Wendell Parr, went over there and met him. Supernatural how we got together. But he watches me every day, and Wendell went there. He picked him up in a Bentley limousine behind the other Bentley limousine that he owned and took him to his house, and he lives in this huge house. And he had just bought his 52nd or 53rd boat that day for $252 million. It was his 53rd boat like that. The guy has billions of dollars worth of assets. Did you know that he's, as far as I know, never given us a penny? But, you know, one guy like that, all God would have to do is have one person give me, you know, I don't know how much I'd need, but maybe $20 billion, and I could live off of the interest. God could do it some other way. But God set it up 
so that he uses people like this. And why does he want you to give? Because I need it. God could get money to me some other way. He could, I could strike oil. Who knows? You know, God can do it. There is no problem. But God wants you to give because he wants you to trust him. He wants you to see him as your source. What I've talked about tonight, get to a place where money's not important, but you trust in God and God is your source and you've got God and God has promised you that he's going to bless you. And if you give up something, it'll be given back. God wants you to trust him. And it's one thing for you to say, oh yeah, I trust him. I really believe that. Talk is cheap. But you know what? When you start giving, man, that takes it out of the realm of theory. This is either you really believe or you don't. And I've had hundreds, maybe millions, I don't know, but lots of people come to me who say, I want to give. And if I had it, I'd give. What they mean is, if I had enough that I could have all of my needs covered and I didn't have to trust God, I'd give. But they're only going to give when they don't need it. They're only going to give when if the word doesn't work and it doesn't come back, then I'll give and I'll trust, you know, that it's going to work. But you need to give right now. I don't care what your situation is. You just need to part with some of this stuff and get to a place where you really believe God. Amen. So it's not about my need. It's about your need to trust God. You need to get this attitude like this man that, you know what? God is my source. And this is just stuff. It's just money. And I'm going to use the power of this money. I'm going to plant a seed and I'm going to see it grow and I'm going to see things happen. Well, you do that, and I guarantee you, you will prosper. You'll get to a place where you never evaluate God's will by how much money you have, but rather by what God told you to do. That is awesome. That's awesome. Were you wanting to say something, Lawson? You was about ready to preach down here, weren't you? <laughs> Lawson believes in this. Man, this is a prosperous man, and they are. How long did it take you to get this building? What was your, uh, how much did this building cost, and you got it paid off in just nothing? Do you have a microphone, Gary? I want Lawson to give a little testimony. This isn't just my testimony. Lawson operates in this. He's seen it happen. So we bought the building next door. The first testimony is how we got it because they were asking a million and a half. And I came over here to listen to somebody speaking. Andrew was in the back and he was really excited. They have to know him really well to tell when he's really excited. That's right. But I could tell he was really excited. He says, you got to come to the back with me after the break. So. I went in the back. He said, you know, we were looking at buying this building next door, and I started praying in the Holy Ghost. There's actually two buildings. And the Lord told me, turn it over to you. Are you interested? I said, absolutely. So he turned it over to me. He said, if you don't get something done, I'll do something. So I went over and looked at it that afternoon. And I thought, boy, this works perfect for a church. I could just see it. And so I researched a little bit. I wanted to buy it for 850000 Well, we met with the guys, and they were asking a million and a half. Well, in an hour and 15 minutes, they went from a million and a half to 850000 and so we bought it. That was in November. We closed before the end of the year for 850000 We took a loan on the building for all we could borrow, which was about $614,000 or something like that. But then we kept some of our money in reserve so we could start on the process. But we needed, you know, more money than that to get the job done while we were in the process of doing the job. So the, the, the short story was it cost us $2.3 million. And, and they came to us while we were in the process and said, hey, we'd like to have a parking lot over there that a bunch of you parked in tonight. And we didn't have the money for that. They said, we'd give you a donation. So the school gave us a donation and helped us with part of that. They gave us about a third of it. And I, bar- I was going to borrow the rest, but Obama changed the rules, so we couldn't borrow the rest. But, but anyway, the money just came in supernaturally. 
And, and we got it all done, $2.3 million. We, we bought the building for 850000 so we added about $1.5 million. And so we got all that done, and we had $614,000 of debt, and we moved in the door. And then we, we had to buy all our chairs and all our sound system and our video system. All that's paid for. Television. Yeah, now we're on television. Yeah, we got a multi-camera system, and we're on national television. We're on three days a week. We're paying half price for one program when we're on three days a week. We have supernatural favor. We have favor everywhere we go and everything that we do. Now, the whole time that we've been here, we started our church with two families, one bachelor and one family. That was 12 years ago. And so the whole time we've been here, and we've given just about 20% away every year. So it's supernatural. I was telling somebody, I don't know how it works. I can't live in it. I just give when God tells me to give. We just keep giving. But anyway, God told me after we got in the building, he said, now pay the building off and save 20%. So in about 14 months, we paid the building off. So how much indebtedness? About $614,000. And then he said, save 20%. So we got over a million saved. And we're giving all the time. We haven't quit giving. We're just giving like mad. I don't even know how it works. I can't even explain. Sometimes we give more than comes in in the offering on a Sunday morning. I don't know how that works. And we just keep giving and giving, and it just keeps coming back to us. And we just try to give where God tells us and keep giving, and it just keeps coming back. And Praise God. But it's supernatural. And I know when God told us, I asked my board, and we tell our church, listen, we're saving 20%. God told us to pay the building off and save 20% because he's got a plan for us in the future. And I told the people before we went there, I said, I don't know what God's going to do, but he's going to open a door. And when he opens it, we're going to have the money. We're going to be standing there ready to walk in it. One of the people that came to my church listened to a message that I preached before we ever got in the building. said, it happened just exactly like you said. You were preaching this before we ever knew what was going to happen. Just like you said, it came to pass. But God's going to do something great. He's going to open a door. We're going to be standing ready with the money to go in the door. And the next great opportunity he has for us to reach the city, reach the nation, reach the world. And praise God, we're giving all the time, and money just comes. Money doesn't control us, praise God. Money is not our master. Money is our servant, praise God. And we get to do with it what God wants us to do. It's awesome to be a giver, to be a blessing. That's great, Lawson. Thanks, brother. So see, it's not just us. Here's another ministry that, I mean, has millions of dollars worth of assets. After 12 years coming here with nothing but his family and just... Enough money. Matter of fact, they had to believe God for extra to get the house that they moved into. And here he is uh, 12 years later with millions of dollars worth of assets, money in the bank. And an, and they've got a vision. Uh, I was talking to him earlier about building a 5,000-seat auditorium and stuff. And, and, you know, all of this happens just because you, you learn these principles of stewardship. Man, that's awesome. I just pray that the Holy Spirit helps you to get hold of this. Because it's true, and it'll work for anybody, anybody, anybody. I know some of you are thinking, well, you're preachers, and you ask everybody for their money, and they just give it to you. Anyway, I hadn't got time to go there, but <laughs> it'll work for anybody. If you'd like an offering envelope, if you'll hold your hand up, our ushers will get you an offering envelope. This is for cash giving, and uh, fill it out, and we'll get you a tax-deductible receipt. There's also a place for giving by credit card. We don't encourage you to go in debt in your giving, but if you'd pay your credit cards off and use it for convenience, that would be good. If you're making out a check, make it out to... um, You're saying make it out to CBC is what the thing says. Is that right? AWM or CBC, either one will work. 
and uh, everything that comes in will be going towards our CBC missions. Praise the Lord. Father, I just thank you for these truths. I thank you, Father, and I ask you for people who are dominated and controlled by money, that are the servants of money and can't do anything unless money tells them they can do it. Father, I pray that you'd put this vision on their heart, that they have been blessed, that you have given them the ability, the power to get wealth so that you could establish your covenant here on the earth and that they would be freed up from being a servant to money and that they would be the master. That, Father, they could just get to a place to where they don't care about these physical things, that it's your blessing, it's your favor that's the real asset. Thank you, Jesus. And, to, and Father, we just prove it by giving, by letting go of some of this, that our trust and confidence isn't in this money, but it's in you and in your promise. And you said that when we give, it'll be given back. So we do that. And Father, we believe that there is an, a super abundance of finances coming back to every single person so that they can abound and do all of these things that you're leading them to do. And we thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praise God. You can receive the offering. You know, I was just watching the people change the stage out after the praise and worship, and I wanted to say thanks to all of our students and to everybody who's working. I mean, it looks like a bunch of ants up here just all working in unison, getting this done. That was great. I appreciate all of you who do that. All of our students that are taking the offerings, that are parking the cars, that are doing everything. I don't even know. How many people are working, but thanks to everybody, to the leadership, to Gary. Also, I wanted to say, Gary, it's just awesome what you've done. He's put together this whole team that makes CBC function. And I tell you, Gary has brought us to a level of excellence in this school that we didn't have before, and he's just a blessing. So thanks to everybody and everything that they've done. It's awesome. And I tell you, I am just so happy and satisfied. I can't tell you how happy I am to see things in my school and in my ministry functioning and working without me. <laughs> I just can't tell you what that does for me. I still remember the days that if Jamie and I didn't do it, it didn't get done. And now it's like, you know, we give direction and we had a meeting this week about some things and I give input, but these people have taken ownership and they are here serving the Lord and being directed by God and it is just awesome what God is doing and I am so thrilled with it all. Man, the healing school today is great. Uh, Daniel took that over. Again, Gary is the one that kind of put it together and encouraged it, but Daniel, Ashley, and Carly have done this and the healing school is just awesome and seeing things happen. Uh, again, you know, there was a time that if I didn't do the praying, nobody got healed. And now we've raised up disciples and there are people that are out doing this. And this is what it's all about. This is what God wants us to do. This is his commission to the body of Christ to raise up disciples, not to make converts. And I really believe that the body of Christ is in the position that it's in today because as a whole, we have lots of people who've been converted to Christianity, but they can't reproduce their faith. They can't walk in these things on their own. They're dependent upon the clergy to be able to do everything for them. And in a sense, the clergy has fostered this and promoted it because it's job security. 
You have to have somebody with their collar turned around backwards to stand in between you and God. And you know what? That guarantees you a job. But I tell you, I, we're, we're around here, we're trying to raise up people who will go out and take people further than what we've been able to do, that will do bigger things than what we've been able to do. We're trying to raise up people that will replace us. Amen? And I, re- I believe that's the only way we're going to get the body of Christ uh, to where it needs to go is to make disciples and not just converts. And uh, I'm excited about what God's doing. It's just awesome. So I've really enjoyed it this week. Like uh, Lawson was saying, like I said earlier, I have to tell you when I'm really enjoying it, but I'm really enjoying it. I was telling Barry that, man, I'm so looking forward to hearing him tomorrow. This is one of the things I love about these meetings because it's not just me ministering, but I get to listen to other people. And man, it gets me fired up. I can't listen to one or two sessions before I've got to get up and say something. (laughs) Amen. So this is really great. I'd like you to turn over to Luke chapter 24. And I want to share something with you. The Lord showed this to me 40-something years ago when I was just getting started. You know, when I first got started, like I told you, I was an introvert. I had a lot of fear about standing in front of people. And then finally, I got to where I was looking past that and I knew that God's anointing was on my life and I began to experience God using me and I began to get confident. But I began to be fearful about, God, will you anoint me tonight? And I felt like I had to do things to maintain this. And anyway, there was a lot of things that were uh, coming together. But the Lord used this passage here in Luke chapter 24 to speak some things to me that just really revolutionized my life. And it has made a huge difference. And I think it's appropriate to share this with you because many of you have come here. And if, if you've been blessed the way that I've been blessed, I mean the praise and worship, the way that people are loving each other, the testimonies, the word that we've heard, just everything about it. I have really been fired up and encouraged, and I believe that some of you are the same way. I know that many of you don't live in this type of an atmosphere, and so this is kind of abnormal and that you're enjoying it. And I've had people come to me many times after meetings like this, and they say, man, this is awesome, but we're going to have to go back home. How do we keep this? How do we maintain it? It's like, you know, the disciples with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, they wanted to build three tabernacles and let's just live here. And the Lord said, nope, no building tabernacles. You got to go do what I've called you to do. And so I think that there's some people like this that how do we maintain this? How do we do this on our own without being at a service? Well, one of the things you can do is come to Bible college and Bible college is nothing but campus days, five days a week for two and a half, three years. It's really good. So that's one way to deal with it. But here's another way. In Luke chapter 24, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. And the first few verses of Luke chapter 24 are uh, the women going and seeing the angels and getting the revelation that Jesus was risen from the dead. And they went back and told the disciples that Jesus was risen from the dead. And they didn't believe him. They didn't believe the women. And Jesus had prophesied this. And yet they were just totally dominated by this can't happen. They couldn't believe it. And so it says here in Luke chapter 24 and in verse 13, and it says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. That's seven miles. 
And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And he said unto them, What manner of communications are these that you have one to another as you walk and are sad? And one of them, whose name was Cleopas, you know, we don't know for sure who this is, but Peter was called Cleopas also. I don't know if this was Peter, but it was a disciple of the Lord. And it says, Answering said unto him, Art thou only a stranger in Jerusalem, and hast not known the things which are come to pass in these days? And he said unto them, What things? And they said unto him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, which was a prophet of mighty indeed and in words before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And besides all this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher, And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. And they drew nigh unto the village whither they went, and he made as though he would have gone further. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to tarry with them. And it came to pass, as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it, and brake and gave to them. And their eyes were opened. And they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said one to another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked with him by the way and while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose up and immediately went back into Jerusalem. And the Lord appeared unto them uh, again, and it goes on. But this passage of scripture, this just amazed me. I've meditated on this many, many times about Here these people were, and the reason they were sad was because they loved Jesus and they missed him and they thought that he was dead and that all of their hopes of him being the Messiah and all of the prophecies and the promise that he had made, they thought it wasn't coming true. They were dominated by what they saw, and even though he prophesied to them 14 times his crucifixion and resurrection, they missed it. They didn't understand it. And the reason they were sad was because they were talking about Jesus. But they weren't talking about him in victory. They were talking about him in defeat, in unbelief. You know, it's not enough to just read the Bible and talk about Jesus. Many of us have been brainwashed and programmed that when we read the Bible, all we see is guilt and condemnation and all we see is rules and regulations. And there's many people that they spend a lot of time reading the scriptures, but it's just condemnation to them because they've seen it through a wrong uh, prism, through a wrong way of looking at things. There's a right and a wrong way to talk about Jesus. They were talking about Jesus and they were sad and they were confused and they were discouraged. You have to have the right revelation of Jesus in order to really appreciate and have the relationship with God that he wants you to have. 
So they were talking about Jesus, but it says that their eyes were holding that they could not know him. What does that mean? And then later in this story, after they were taking communion, did you know they didn't recognize him by seeing him? They recognized him by his mannerisms. He had just had communion with them three days before and had said, this is my body. And he broke the bread. And as he broke the bread and as he was eating with them, they recognized him by mannerisms, not by sight. And, you know, I've got, a, I've got at least three hours worth of teaching on this. I'm not going to go uh, there tonight, but I'll just mention it. But there are at least, I forget exactly how many, 14, 16 resurrection appearances of Jesus. He never appeared to anybody except people who already believed on him. He never appeared to an unbeliever ever. He only appeared to people who believed on him and not a single time did they recognize him. In every instance, the people, Peter, James, and John, the people that had walked and talked with him, had lived with him 24 hours a day for three and a half years, nobody recognized him. Mary didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener and he finally had to say Mary and it was the way he said Mary that she recognized that it's the Lord. And you can go on and on. In the 20th chapter of John, when they went fishing, they came and he had baked, coal, uh, baked uh, fish on the coals and he was feeding them. And he was sitting there looking as close as me to David. And he was looking at his 11 apostles. Judas had hung himself, but the 11 were all there and they were looking at him face to face. And it says none of, their, none of them dared to ask him who he was because they knew he was Jesus. But the very fact that it mentioned that they wouldn't ask who he was because they knew, they perceived it by their spirit. They didn't recognize him in the flesh. And the, and the key to this is over in the 28th chapter. Let me just read this verse. This is Matthew chapter 28. Let me read this verse to you and we'll come right back. But in Matthew chapter 28... This is Jesus' last appearance before he was caught up into heaven. And in Matthew chapter 28, and in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some of who? Some of the eleven Peter, James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew, Nat, uh, who was it, Nathan or Nathaniel. And anyway, all of these people, Thomas and all of these, his 11 disciples that had spent 24 hours a day with him for three and a half years were seeing him face to face and they worshiped him. But some of the 11 doubted that this was really Jesus. Some people haven't gotten this, but if, it's sometimes subtle. But if you look in every resurrection appearance, the people couldn't perceive that it was Jesus. And one of the keys is over here in Luke chapter 24. It says here that uh, in verse 15, and it came to pass that while they communed together in reason, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were holding that they should not know him. There was something keeping them from recognizing him. They didn't even realize. Here they were sad because Jesus was gone. And here was Jesus walking with them. 
They should have been glad. They should have been rejoicing. This was awesome. The resurrected Christ came and made a personal appearance with them. The one that if they could have known what was going on, they would have had joy unspeakable and full of glory. They would have been rejoicing in the Lord and he was with them and they were sad talking about him with him standing right there. That's amazing. And anyway, the point, the the parallel I'm wanting to give tonight is that you know what? You have experienced some things and God has spoken to you and we've been in great praise and worship and things have happened. But did you know that God is with you all of the time, 24-7? And what we've experienced here is just a small taste. None of us have seen the full glory of God. None of us have experienced everything. If you've experienced something and if it's been good, I can guarantee you it's a million times better than what we've ever been able to perceive or understand. And it's like this 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But there is something that hinders us from perceiving it. And you know what it is? It's our carnal minds. The word carnal means of the five senses. And most of us are more controlled by what we see, taste, hear, smell, and feel than we are by what we believe. We're walking by sight and not by faith. But you can get to where you walk by faith and you can perceive that God is with you constantly, 24 hours a day. Whether you see it, whether you feel it, You could be feeling fear. You could be feeling rejection. You could be feeling anything. And yet you could go to the Word of God and begin to minister to yourself and perceive the presence of God and it'd take care of all of these things. And that's with you all of the time. It's not that Jesus isn't with us. It's that our perception of Him is blinded. We are carnal. We're dominated by these physical, natural emotions. Look over in Mark chapter 16. Here's another verse. This is the exact same instance but it's only summarized in two verses. And so in Mark chapter 16, here's what Mark 16 says. In verse 12, it says, After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country and they went and Uh, told it unto the residue, neither believe they them. Jesus, this is talking about the same thing that's recorded in Luke chapter 24. Jesus appeared unto two of them as they walked into the country, these two that were going to the road to Emmaus. But it says here that he appeared in another form. What was this other form? Was he in the form of a dog or a horse? No, it was a person walking with them. Was he a different looking person? No, because later in the 24th chapter, I didn't read all of those, but later that same night, he appeared unto the 11 as they were in a room and the doors were locked for fear of the Jews and he just appeared in the room. And also you can read this, John chapter 20, that uh, eight days later, he appeared unto uh, Thomas and Thomas, had, he wasn't with him when he appeared on this day, the resurrection day. And, and when they told Thomas about it, Thomas said, I don't believe it. I will not believe that he is risen from the dead unless I can put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side. I will not believe. And in John chapter 20, uh, Jesus appeared eight days later and he walked right up to Thomas and he said, Thomas, 
Behold my hands. Put your finger into the print of the nails in my hands and thrust your hand into my side and be not faithless but believing. And so by saying that, Jesus showed that he still was the same person. He still had the marks of crucifixion in him. He still bears the marks of crucifixion. You know, I just understood this uh, at our last minister's conference over in the UK. Bob Yandian was preaching. And I just realized for the first time in my life that Jesus didn't just take human form and come to this earth and die for us. But you know, God is a spirit. And it says the heavens of the heavens can't contain him, much less this temple that we have built is what Solomon said. God is infinite, and yet he limited himself to a physical body and came down here. I've understood that before, but it just dawned on me that Jesus is going to live in a body for all eternity, identified with us, bearing the marks of crucifixion. Almighty, infinite God is going to be conformed, confined to a body through all eternity because he loves us so much. You know what? I wouldn't love you enough to do that if I was God. But God loves us so much that he became a man and he was resurrected as a man in a body a physical body, and it still bears the print of the nails. I believe he's still got scars on his face, that he's still got the scars from being whipped. And Jesus is going to live in that form forever. We're going to see him and be able to physically walk up and touch him. He, he told people, he says, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones the way that I do. Jesus had flesh and bones. He was in a physical body. It was still the same physical body, and yet the people that had spent 24 hours a day with him for three and a half years didn't recognize him. Why is that? Look at this passage over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and this is, I believe, the explanation for this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul was talking about how he spoke unto them, not with the wisdom of men, but in the wisdom of God, and he didn't trust in those things. And he says, I hasn't seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. That's a quotation from the Old Testament. And many times religion today will just say, that's the way it is. We just can't know the things of God. That's not what he was saying. He was just saying you can't know the things of God with your little peanut brain. You can't perceive it with just your understanding because it says right after it quotes that Old Testament scripture in verse uh, 9, in verse 10, it says, but God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. It's not saying you can't know the things of God. It's saying you can't know the things of God with just your brain. You can't figure it out. You can't just see it. It's not carnal, it's not natural, but you can know the things of God by the Spirit of God. And he just continues to talk about this, that the only person who really knows what's going on inside of a person is the Spirit of that person. Likewise, the only one who has a perfect representation or revelation of God is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God will reveal God to us and show us the things of God. But you've got to go by the Spirit. You can't figure Him out intellectually. You can't just wait to see or feel something. Most people are wanting a goosebump to go up and down their spine. They're wanting to see a glory cloud. They're wanting some physical manifestation. And because of that, that's what blinds our eyes and keeps us from seeing Him. He's always with us. 
He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. God is always with us. He has never left us. But our perception of him varies because we're carnal and we get to focusing on our problems and listening to the bad news and all of this kind of stuff. But the truth is God is always with us. And whenever you start yielding to the spirit and using your spiritual eyesight, you can perceive the presence of God. You can recognize that he's with you, but it doesn't come in the natural. And he goes on to say this in verse 14. He says, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. You can only discern spiritual things by the spirit. Matter of fact, it says this right here that we compare in the previous verse, in verse 13, it says, which also... Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teaching teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. You have to know, you have to perceive spiritual things by the Spirit. You can't know it in the natural. You know, I have people come to me all of the time, and they say things like, oh, have you read this book? And science is now proving that it's true, that your words are powerful and they're a part of your brain. And they just get so excited because now there's some natural thing. Some doctor has said it. It's written in some medical book. And the unbelievers are, are you know, signing off on it. And they say, man, isn't this awesome? You need to go to preaching this. And I say, I don't care what the doctors have to say and stuff. People come and say, man, they found a part of Noah's Ark. This is going to make people believe. Now they found the Ark of the Covenant. They've got this and archaeology has discovered this and all of these things. Man, those things, Jesus said that even if a person rose from the dead, they will not believe. I've seen people raised from the dead and I've, I saw a guy raised from the dead and he didn't believe. He said, it's not true. And finally, after three weeks of this guy being raised from the dead, he was paralyzed, unable to walk. And he was, the doctors made him start walking two miles a day, laps around the hospital. And he had been paralyzed before. And even though he had been paralyzed and had all this pain, couldn't walk, he was raised from the dead. He just griped the whole time. People don't recognize how sick I am. He was mad at the doctors because they were making him get out of his wheelchair and walk. And I just kept telling, and finally, I just washed my hands off him. And I told the church, I said, look, I've put enough effort into this guy to save the whole town of Pritchett. And I said, I'm not against him, but I'm through. This guy doesn't want to believe, and I'm letting him go. I said, I'm not praying against him, but I'm not praying for him. I've got other people that want to hear, and, and the rest of everybody else had had the same experience, and we all agreed. Did you know within three weeks of that, six months after he was first, I mean, six weeks after he was first raised from the dead, he died again, and he was 100% healthy. The doctor said there was nothing wrong with him, but he just wanted to be sick. He wouldn't believe, and he was the one that was raised from the dead, and he didn't believe it. Jesus said, though one rose from the dead, they will not believe. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It does not come by scientific fact and confirmation and seeing two cats walk this way and one dog walk that way. That is not enough. Faith comes by the word of God. And so anyway, you have to perceive it by the spirit. And I don't care. It doesn't, I don't need other physical things to confirm the word of God to me. Amen. 
Anyway, I could stay on that a long time. But you've got to discern spiritual things by the Spirit. And the reason their eyes were blinded was because they were reasoning. That's what it says in Luke chapter 24. They were reasoning. How could this be? They had all of the right information. The angels had proclaimed that he was risen. The tomb was empty. The seal was broken. The soldiers that were there had scattered. And, and, you know, that should have been proof enough that something supernatural happened because the Romans were doing everything they could to keep somebody from taking that stone away. And then the women had seen Jesus. And then here they were walking with him. And yet they still couldn't believe. You know why? Because they were reasoning. They were trying to figure it out in their mind. How can this happen? I'm sure that they said things like, I'm, I'm sure that after three days, part of his body has already decayed. He's now no longer, you know, all of his insides and stuff, they're decayed. They've started deteriorating. How could God raise him up? I've had people say this to me hundreds of times when they, they find out that I've seen people raised from the dead. They come and they say, this person's already embalmed. Could God raise him from the dead? Well, someday he's going to take every person that was ever eaten by a shark and resurrect that body and put it all back together. And they're going to come back and every person that's had their ashes, you know, they've been cremated and their ashes have been thrown over the wind and they've gone to the four corners of the earth. They're all going to be reconstituted and come back together. I don't know how God does it, but you know, it's not impossible for God. But see, this is the way people think. Well, I understand that a person could be raised from the dead, but what if they've been dead for a day or two or three days? Man, their body's already starting to decay and they reason. Man, just come up here and let me slap you. Amen. (laughs) That is just carnal reasoning. Is anything too hard for God? Well, you say that, but you know what? All of the time we just reason. Our reasoning, it blinds us. It keeps you in the carnal realm and you have to spiritually discern the Lord. Jesus, he was raised a spiritual body is what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said. When he told the people, he says, touch me, feel me for a body, I mean a spirit, hath not flesh and bone as you see me had. He had a physical, tangible body that you could feel. He ate, he ate a honeycomb and fish. He ate. He was hungry and asked them for food. Jesus had a body, but it was a glorified spiritual body. It could appear into a room. It could disappear. It could do things. It didn't have, it wasn't exactly the same as ours, but he still looked the same. He still had the print of the nails in his hand. But the difference was it was spiritual. And this is what, Paul said, I read this verse last night or sometime, I think it's last night. He says, we've known Christ after the flesh, but now we don't know him that way anymore. And then he says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. At one time, you know, uh, Paul, he wasn't one of Jesus' followers, but Jesus certainly was the most dominant figure in the nation. And he was a part of the Pharisees and they constantly were at Jesus' meetings heckling him and criticizing him and doing things. I can guarantee you, Paul had seen Jesus. If nothing else, he saw the crucifixion of Jesus. He could tell you how tall Jesus was. He could tell you what his hair looked like. He could tell you his mannerisms. He could tell you all kinds of things about him physically. And he says, at once we knew Jesus after the flesh 
But now we don't know him that way anymore. These disciples knew Jesus after the flesh. They could have told you what his mannerisms were like, but they didn't know who he was inside. This is the reason that Peter rebuked him and says, he'll never die. We'll never let it happen. And Jesus turned around and said, get behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things of God. He wasn't talking about Peter, his physical body being Satan, but Satan inspired those words. They didn't know who Jesus really was. They constantly were amazed to see Jesus do things. They knew him in the natural, in his flesh. But they didn't know him spiritually. You know, I have people all the time say, man, if I'd have been one of Jesus' disciples, I'd have been, man, I'd have been a believer. If I'd have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, if I'd have seen him walk on the water, if I'd have seen him multiply the food, if I'd have been there and I'd have done that, I'd have been a believer. Did you know it would have been harder to believe if you would have been one of Jesus' disciples. You know why? Because you were looking at his physical body and the scriptures, we read some of those things over in Isaiah. Uh, I guess it was last night or this morning that there is no beauty in him. Isaiah chapter 53, there was no beauty in Jesus that we should be desiring. Jesus wasn't a pretty person. You know, if I'd have been God and I was going to become a man, which is a huge stretch... I can guarantee you, I'd have been the biggest, best man that ever existed. I would have been taller than anybody else. I'd have been one specimen, amen, of human being. But Jesus, there wasn't anything about him that made, that made you think he was God. His flesh, he was not a pretty person. There was no beauty in him. It just didn't say that he wasn't the best looking person. It says there was no beauty in him. Jesus wasn't a pretty person. He wasn't a strong-looking person. Jesus was as natural as any person right here. Jesus, there was nothing special about him. And for you to look at him and say, this is God, that physical body would have been a hindrance. Your flesh, your mind, your reasoning would have been saying, this can't be God. You know, some of you, you don't think this way. I don't know what to tell you. I don't get mad at me. I'm not trying to be irreverent or anything. But you know what? These guys saw Jesus get tired. They saw him sweat. They could smell him coming. And he didn't have a suitcase with him. And he didn't change clothes every day. And he didn't take a shower every day. Jesus got smelly. He was in the hot Judean sun. And he wore the same clothes day after day. And he'd walk 20 miles a day. Jesus smelled at times. He didn't wash his hair every day. His hair looked bad. You know what? They saw him go to the bathroom. They saw Jesus have to go relieve himself. He got tired. He had to go to sleep. And you're looking at a person and thinking, this person is just as human as you are. Everything about him is natural. He smells. He had to blow his nose. And you look at him and think, this is God? That would be hard to believe. You know, I'm what they call a lucid dreamer. I've read articles about I'm a, I dream in color. I dream all of the time. I fell asleep for five minutes today, and Jamie walked in to the hotel room and woke me up. And, uh, I mean, in that five minutes, I'd had five, ten dreams. I dream all of the time. I dream 
constantly. I can start and stop my dreams. I can choose what I want to dream about. If I'm having a dream and don't like it, I can change it. Or I'll tell myself it's only a dream and I just let it go and don't worry about it. It's amazing what I can do when I dream. I don't know what that means, but I'm just telling you (laughs) this is the way it is. And anyway, many, many years ago, 30 years ago, I had a dream that I was one of the disciples and man, I was there and everything you're reading in the Bible, I was there. I saw it. I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and I mean, we were just praising God and so excited. We were seeing miracle after miracle after miracle, just people healed and things and in the midst of it, I was just so excited to be one of Jesus' disciples and we were walking down the road and Jesus just turned right around and stuck his finger right in my face and says, but who do you say that I am? And my heart said, you are the son of the living God. Everything I saw happening said that it was totally supernatural in your God. But when I looked at him, he was as man, he was as human as Gary. And I was looking at him and he was all human. And I tell you what, it took every bit of faith I had to put down my doubts and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm saying that to say that I, that dream was so real. I really believe that that's the way it was for these disciples. The disciples, it was hard for them to accept that he was God because they saw him so human. It's easy for us. We can close our eyes and picture him seated at the right hand of God the Father. We can read about all of this and we don't have to deal with that flesh. We don't have to see his humanness. It's actually easier for us to believe in Jesus because we don't have this flesh just screaming at us constantly and saying he's only a man. It's only natural. We can see him, picture him any way we want to. We can think about him. We don't have this physical thing there to hinder us. So it's actually, I believe, easier for us to believe in Jesus than it was his disciples. When they saw him crucified... He bled just like any other man would bleed. And they saw him suffer and they saw him die. And you know what? To their natural mind, this is it. It's over. We can read what happened three days later. We know the rest of the story and so we can read it and we can look past all of that and and see the benefit. But they didn't understand that. To them, they, they were, their eyes were blinded by his physical self. And when he came back from the dead, he was now still in a body, but it was a spiritual body, and it had to be discerned spiritually. It had to be perceived by the Spirit. And this is why every one of his disciples, even through 14 or 16 resurrection appearances, struggled every single time to believe that this was really Jesus. They could see the print of the nails. They could see this, but they... But it was different. He was spiritual now instead of physical. And you could only know him spiritually. And notice that in Luke chapter 24, he used the word to open up their eyes. He taught them from the word and then he broke bread with them. He had communion with them and it was in their communion with Jesus that their eyes were opened. Does this mean that they had walked seven miles with their eyes closed and had never looked at him? This isn't talking about their physical eyes. It's talking about the eyes of their heart. Finally, they saw with their heart. And the moment they perceived him and saw who he was, he vanished. Did you know that seeing by your heart is better than seeing by your eyes? 
Knowing Jesus spiritually and having him speak to you is superior to having a physical goosebump, seeing something happening, having an audible voice, a glory cloud come in. If the Lord wanted to, he could manifest himself every single moment of every single day. He could talk to you in an audible voice every moment. He could write his name on every cloud that passes over. He could have a dog walk up to you and tell you what you're supposed to do today and give you all of the instructions. He could have a bird come sit on your neck. He could do anything. And he's done miraculous things on occasions. But you know what? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God is trying to get us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. And yet most of us are trying to do everything we can to not have to operate by faith and do something in the flesh. We want to see or prove something physical. We are so excited when a scientist finally comes out and says your words are important. When the Bible said all along that death and life are in the power of the words. But man, we put more, well, a scientist verified it. Now I know it's true. You carnal thing. If that's the way you are, you're going to miss it in some other area. You cannot perceive God in the flesh. You have to do it by the Spirit. And the good news is that we have the Spirit of God on the inside of us. We have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. The Lord said that we are His sheep and His sheep hear His voice. It didn't say His sheep can hear His voice. It says His sheep do hear His voice. And you say, well, I don't. Yes, you do. You hear it in your spirit, but you override it. You reason, and that reason talks you out of it. You know, Mary Hirschberger that was up here giving her testimony, I hope she doesn't mind. I'm not going to give any details, but Mary was praying about what to do on graduation, and she really felt in her heart to go back to Ohio, and yet there were some people telling her that, no, don't do that. And so anyway, she came and saw me this week, and she was confused and she says here's what I really feel in my heart but everybody tells me no don't do this and I said well Mary you've answered your own question you said in your heart this is what you feel you let the peace of God rule in your heart and you don't lean under your own understanding so I talked to her just real briefly and then we prayed with her and as I prayed with her I prayed exact words that God had already told her and I prophesied and said, you are supposed to go back. You aren't going to be there forever, but for a period of time. And God had told her that exact same thing, that it's just for a period of time. I, the Lord uh, gave some words to me about that there's people back there in that Mennonite and Amish community that, man, you're their key. They are praying and asking God, and you are the key, and God is going to use you. And as I began to say this, God had told her those exact same things, and she already knew which women they were that were going to be Touch. God had spoken all of these things to her, but she just wasn't confident until I prophesied it and it confirmed it. And man, I was asking her tonight and she says, I know that I know. And she is just so excited. But you know what? God had been talking to her all along, but we let our reason and what other people have to say in circumstances and finances hinder us. But the truth is you have an ability to know things with your heart that you can't know with your brain. You have an ability to walk with God. You have to perceive it. God is a spirit and he wants you to operate in the spirit realm. He's trying to bring you up to a higher level. 
And most of us are trying to bring God down to our human level to where he will speak. And we want, you know, some supernatural sign. I'm going to put this fleece out here. And if the fleece is wet, then I'll know. And the ground is dry. Then I'll know that you're telling me to do this. So God does what Gideon asked him to do. And then he says, maybe that was coincidence. This time I want the fleece to be dry and the ground to be wet. And he goes through five different times proving God. You shouldn't do that because we as New Testament believers have the Spirit of God on the inside and we can know Him. It goes on to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, right after it says you have to spiritually discern this, it says, but we have the mind of Christ. You have Christ's mind on the inside of you. You have an ability to know things by the Spirit. I can guarantee you every person in here at some time or another has faced some kind of a decision. You've had a crossroads in your life you're trying to make a decision. You go and get advice. Other people counsel you. And you go ahead and go with reason. You follow logic. And it falls apart. It didn't work. And what have you said? I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew. And why did you know it? There wasn't any reason. There wasn't anything in the natural. But you just knew on the inside that you were supposed to go a different direction. But you let uh, people, circumstances, Finances or something dictate to you. Every one of you hears from God. Every one of you have this ability to walk by the Spirit. Every one of us have the ability to take what we have seen and felt here this week and when you see and feel nothing, you can walk by faith and still perceive it and have a supernatural peace and joy flowing through your life. And you can have a communion with God when there isn't any physical reason for it. Everything in the natural, your senses are crying out that you should be crying. You should be panicking. You need to be doing something. Don't you realize you're about to have a train wreck? Do something and you're just sitting there in total peace. It passes understanding. You don't understand why, but you just, you just know God. This, it, this shouldn't be abnormal. This is the normal Christian life. And you know what happened to me when I saw this in Luke chapter 24? I realized that God, you've never forsaken me. You've been with me every, time, every step. And sometimes I perceive it, sometimes I don't. But I just nailed it and said, he's always with me. And never again am I going to sit there and indulge my feelings of he's left me, he's forsaken me, he's not going to use me. I don't care how bad anything looks God is always with me. And the moment I start getting into the word and renewing my mind and commune with him, then my eyes will be open and I'll perceive him. And I've lived by that. You know, when I was in Vietnam, this is back when I, I, right after I'd had that great experience where I just had this emotional thing with God. And I didn't know anything about the word. And so when when the emotion wore off, I spent... 13 months in Vietnam seeking God. Oh God, I've got to have another experience. I've got to have another encounter. I need an epiphany. I need a visitation. And I was praying and asking God to do things and just totally discontent with where I was. I wanted to feel and see God the way that I had before. And I know that this is contrary to scripture, but this is my perception. This is what happened to me. And I'm just telling you what happened to me. During this time where I was so depressed and discouraged, oh God, you've left me. Oh God. And I knew that the word said he had never leave me nor forsake me, but I felt like he had. And so I was indulging my feelings 
whether, you know, regardless of what the Bible said. And so anyway, during this period of time, I was a chaplain's assistant. And I don't know how it happened, but I just woke up one morning and God was gone. I thought he was gone because I wasn't having these overwhelming feelings and I wasn't just happy and bubbling over with emotion. But I wasn't bad. I mean, I was still, you know, had a relative peace. I remember I, I felt like God had a purpose for my life. I was seeking him. And so it was okay, but I just wanted these spectacular experiences with God. But one morning I woke up and I mean, it was like God was gone. It's like God died. I really believe that what I experienced for three days was what hell is going to be like because I think hell is not only going to be the physical punishment, but it's going to be that there is no God in the world. There's no hope. We don't understand how much God graces us with his presence. We don't understand. It could be worse. And for three days, it was like God was gone. And I mean, terror and fear gripped me I was a chaplain's assistant. If somebody came into the chaplain's bunker, I was supposed to, you know, set up appointments and deal with them and do things. And I literally got so petrified that a guy I remember came into the chaplain's bunker and I got into this closet that I had made and piled clothes over the top of me and hid because I couldn't look at a person. I didn't eat for three days. I didn't drink water for three days. I panicked. God, what happened? It was, there was no knowledge of God whatsoever. There was no peace. There was no presence of God. And I was miserable and I was hitting the panic button. Man, I was praying for all I was worth. I did everything I knew. And finally, on the third day, I was sleeping on this army cot and I woke up at like three in the morning and... I was just kneeling beside the cot and I was praying and nothing special was happening. There wasn't any fireworks. It wasn't a great experience. I didn't have an emotional high. I was just back to normal. And I thought, man, thank you, Jesus, for normal. And I said, never again am I ever going to complain. Man, I went without any awareness of God, any presence of God, and I found out that my, my worst normal was better than that. And I know that God didn't leave me, but I think what happened was he just says, you want to know what it's like when I'm not around at all. And he just took his presence away. I don't believe he ever left me, but my perception of it left. And you know what? I changed my opinion. And I realized that I don't care when everything's going bad and it's just bland and there's nothing happening. You know what? God's with me. I know he's with me and I've never gotten over it. And when I got this revelation from Luke 24, I never have done it, but I always wanted to get these fluorescent letters and say, I will never leave you nor forsake you and put it on my ceiling so that when I woke up in the night, it would be a reminder that God's always with me. And I did get pictures of uh, Jesus walking on the Emmaus road with the two disciples and I did get that. And I've got pictures of that plastered around. A guy recently is painting a picture for me. And he says, what do you want? I said, I want that picture of Jesus walking on the Emmaus Road with his two disciples. I tell you, this was a significant thing in my life because I believe that God is always with me. And sometimes I can't perceive it, but it's not God who left. It's my perception. I'm carnal and I know how to solve that problem. I get into the Word of God and I begin to commune with God. And when I do, my eyes are open 
and all of that discouragement and fear and discouragement and stuff is gone. I can encourage myself in the Lord. I've understood how to do it. And I tell you, you got to overcome this reasoning. This is what uh, Greg was talking about this morning when he says you got to get rid of that little Greek, that reasoning. You got to roast your peanut. You got to get to where you don't lean under your own understanding, but you follow what's in your heart. You learn to start flowing out of your heart. You have to know God by the Spirit. You must worship Him in spirit. And in truth, you can't worship God in just the flesh. You have to worship Him in spirit and in truth. And brothers and sisters, you're loaded. I'm assuming now that everybody here is born again, baptized in the Holy Spirit because we've given you opportunities and we've seen lots of people receive. And so if you are born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, you are loaded. The only thing that's a hindrance is this little brain up here that keeps trying to figure it out and reason it. You know, relating this back to our weekend here, many of you are praying about whether to come here. And if you could just listen to your heart, you wouldn't have a single problem. But the problem is you know you can feel what God's saying. You have the desire, but you're trying to reason it out. What is this person going to think? There are some of you that are literally thinking about what are your relatives going to say, your parents, your children, your neighbors, your in-laws, your outlaws, and you're thinking, how are they going to respond? That shouldn't even be a factor. Who cares what somebody else has to say? What did Jesus tell you? What is the Lord saying to you? Don't take into account what everybody else says. The fear of man brings a snare. As long as, you know, Jesus said it this way in John chapter 5, I believe it is, verse 14. How can you believe which receive honor one from another and seek not the honor that comes from God alone? If you have to have the approval, the recognition of people, you can't believe. You'll never be a success in faith. You're going to have to get to a place to where what did God tell you? And if God told you to do it, it doesn't matter if anybody else understands it. You do what God tells you to do. You don't reason. You don't have to be codependent on people. The only person you're dependent upon is God. And you get to where you just walk by the Spirit. Every one of you in here has had God speak to you about whether you're supposed to come or not supposed to come. Again, I'll give the benefit of the doubt that there might be two people in here that aren't supposed to come. <laughs> So not everybody's supposed to come. But you know what? God has already spoken to you. And you say, no, I don't know. No, you do know. The problem is you're reasoning. You're trying to figure it out. Just put all of that aside and let the peace of God rule in your heart. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. I know I've gone long tonight, but let me just end with this, that one of the greatest decisions I ever made in my life was right after I had this experience with the Lord. And I just fell so in love with God that I didn't want anything but God. And I was going to my first year of college. I was getting money from the government, $350 a month if I stayed in school. I had a student deferment from the draft. I had the acceptance of my family and all of my friends. Everything was wonderful if I stayed in school. But when I got turned on to the Lord, I hated school. Before that, I loved it. But I mean instantly, just like that, I wanted out 
of the University of Texas at Arlington. I wanted out as badly as anything. And so I just made the statement that I'm going to quit school. And when I did, you would have thought I committed adultery. They would have forgiven me for adultery, but they would not forgive me for saying that God told me to quit school. I was in a high-browed church that they had the doctors from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, the ones that filled in at our pulpit. And uh, boy, they literally said, we're going to take a vote and we're going to vote you out of the church. They were going to kick me out of the church because I said, God told me to quit school. My mother didn't talk to me for two weeks. She was just totally humiliated. My family turned against me. I had people saying, you're of the devil. I mean, I was attacked from every direction and I was new in the Lord. And so I didn't know what to do. I just kind of withdrew and thought, man, what is such a big deal about this? And I began to doubt these things. And long, long story, but I was studying the word. Romans 14, 23 says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And when I read that, I thought, God, I'm not in faith. I feel like I'm supposed to quit school. You've got something else for me. But I lose money. I could get drafted. My mother's mad at me. My family's mad at me. They're going to kick me out of the church. Everybody else says I'm wrong. And I let reasoning drown out that thing. And when I saw that verse, it says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. I said, you know what? I'm in sin because I haven't made a decision. And so usually I'd stay over at people's house till two or three in the morning. We'd pray and be reading the word. And man, it was like eight o'clock or at night. And when I saw that verse and I said, I'm going home, I said, I'm in sin. And tomorrow I will not be living in sin. I'm going to make a decision tonight. Either I'm going to stay in school or I'm going to get out of school, but I am not going to be wavering tomorrow. I'm making a decision. And so I went home and I began to pray and say, God, I'm sorry for being in sin. What am I supposed to do? And anyway, I was studying and God gave me Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 that says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are also called in one body and be ye thankful. And when I said that, I looked up the word rule and it's the word we get umpire from. You know, an umpire just has to make a decision. When they throw the ball, he can't say, well, I'm not sure. Let's do that one over. No, you have to make a call. And if you're wrong... You're wrong, but you've got to make a decision. you just got to be decisive. Let the peace of God be that decisive. Let it rule, dominate, control you. And so I said, all right, God, that's what I'm going to do. What do I have the most peace about? And I didn't have total peace about either one. Because if I quit school, I could be sent to Vietnam. I could die. I was going to lose money. I was going to lose the approval of everybody. I could be kicked out of my church. There was a lot of negatives So I didn't feel total peace. And here I was. I mean, I was only a couple of months old in really walking with the Lord. And I had no understanding of much of anything. So for those of you who are struggling, most of you are much further down the road than I was at this time. And yet I made a decision that has been one of the most important decisions I've ever made in my life. And basically I just said, God, I don't have peace in any direction. He says, which direction do you have the most peace about? And I said, well, I'd have to lean towards quitting school because I just hate it and I really would feel wonderful to just quit school. (laughs) But I didn't have total peace. And here's the way the Lord put it to me. He says, if somebody cocked a gun and put it to your head and said, choose, you got 10 seconds to choose and if you choose wrong, I'm going to kill you. 
Which one would I make? Well, put it to me that way. There was no choice what I'd make. The one I felt the most peace about, the one that I would have to say I thought was God would be to quit school. And he says, well, then let the peace of God rule in your heart. And you know what? Even if I, I really believe that if I had made the wrong decision, that that would have been pleasing to God because I would have been taking a step of faith and trying to follow his leadership. But indecision is a decision. Indecision is a decision to say, I'm not going to follow what I really feel in my heart. I'm going to wait on three, three confirmations and on this and on that. And I had made a decision. I was going to have a decision that night. So anyway, I made my decision. I said, that's it. I quit. I quit school and I went to bed. And you know, when I got up in the morning, rather than go down and just first thing quit school, what I did I went to the three people who had criticized me the most, who had told me I was of the devil, people that were really influential in my life and that I respected. I went to them the next morning and I just walked in and I didn't try and sell them. I just walked in and I said, well, I've made my decision. One of them was my youth director and he had told me, you are sinning against God. You aren't honoring your mother. Finally, my mother had come to the place where she says, if that's what God is telling you, then it's okay with me. So I had her permission, if I could guarantee it was God. But he had told me, he had said things that were terrible to me. And I just walked in and I told him, I said, I've made my decision. And he says, what is it? And I said, God told me to quit school. I'm quitting school. And he looked at me and he says, I think that's right. I was shocked. And then there was a school teacher that had really been influential in my life and they were one of my mother's best friends. And because my mother was against this, they had jumped on me like a chicken on a June bug. I mean, she had covered me like a coat of wet paint with all of these reasons why you couldn't do it. And she just blasted me and she wasn't even nice about it. She thought she was doing a favor for my mother. So she's one of the women I went to. And I just went to her and I said, Miss Ellis, I said, I made my decision. God told me to quit school and I'm quitting school. And Miss Ellis just looked at me. And then she started crying. And she says, I'd give anything to be in your place. And I said, you would? <laughs> and she says, I don't remember how old she was, 50 or 60 years old. She says, I'm 50 or 60 years old. And I don't know for sure that I've ever done what God wanted me to do. What a blessing to be 18 years old and know that God has spoken to you. And you know what? By noon of that first day, I knew that I knew that I knew that God had spoken to me and I've never doubted it. And it turned out to be the greatest, one of the greatest decisions I ever made in my life to get off that track I was going on. And I, it cost me, I got sent to Vietnam and Vietnam's the best thing ever happened to me. Because when I went in there, I was a Baptist and there was so many temptations and so many struggles. I just had to stick my nose in the Bible 15 hours a day for 13 months. And when I came out, I wasn't a Baptist anymore. <laughs> I didn't try and change. It just happened. The Word of God changed me. And it was the greatest decision. I look back at it and I marvel that I was found Colossians 3.15. It had to be God that led me to that verse. It had to be God that spoke to me, whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And you know what? I was hearing from God, but I was letting the reasoning and circumstances talk me out of it. And when I finally just took that leap of faith, even if it could kill me, and you know, it could have killed me. I got sent to Vietnam and I nearly died a number of times. I could have died because of that. 
There was high stakes, but man, it transformed my life. And I offer this same thing to you that God spoke to me. You are the sheep, and you do hear the voice of the shepherd. God is speaking to you, but it's just your reasoning and all of these other things. Just put this out of your mind. Forget about the money. Forget about what people are going to say. Forget about your job. Forget about the fact that you've never left and done anything and forget about all of this stuff. If you just were free to do what you feel in your heart, what is God saying to you? Let the peace of God rule in your heart. And if you can miss God doing that, then there's no hope for any of us. Amen? That's what the Bible calls faith, just walking by what's in your spirit while God's put in your heart. And if you'll do that, I can guarantee you, like Stephen was saying today, you're going to come out of this cocoon a butterfly. You're going to see total transformation in your life if you would just follow what God's put in your heart. Isn't that awesome? So you know what? I believe that God inspired me to say these things tonight. And I believe that there's some of you that I'm saying this in love. I'm not trying to condemn. But there's some of you that are in sin right now because God has spoken to you. You feel something in your heart, but you are indecisive. You aren't going to make any committal. You aren't going to do anything because you're letting reason come. And whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And I'm just telling you that you're going to have to abandon yourself to doing what God's put in your heart. Now, if God hasn't put it in your heart, don't let me put it in your heart. But I'm saying that if you could put aside all of the externals and just say, man, I know in my heart that this is what God has spoken to me, but I'm struggling with these other things. I'm going to let the peace of God rule in my heart. You need to make that decision. You need to get out of sin. You need to start walking by faith instead of by sight. You need to quit letting just circumstances dictate you. Don't let money dominate you and be your master. What has God put in your heart? What has God spoken unto you? And I know that the Lord didn't put this on my heart tonight for all of the people that have already made their decision. There are people sitting right here that you are struggling with this, and I'm telling you, if you really feel that God has led you in this direction, let the peace of God rule in your heart. Look at your options. And with your imagination, think about what's going to happen if I do this? And what's going to happen if I do this? And if you're going to sit there and say, man, I'm going to regret this if I don't do it, well, then you need to let the peace of God rule in your heart and you need to make that decision. Amen? Amen. Praise God. You know, I don't know how to give an invitation for this, but let me just do it this way. And let me say, I know that there's some people that God put this on my heart to say this. You in your heart really feel that God is leading you to do this, but your mind is just screaming at you with a million different hindrances and your, your reasoning is blinding you from perceiving what God is trying to say. But if you had a gun put to your head and said, make a decision in the next 10 seconds or, and if you make the wrong one, I'm going to kill you, which one would you make? You know what? You need to commit to that. You need to get out of sin. You need to start walking by faith. And so if you're one of those, I just want to do this. If you're one of those that in your heart you really feel God speaking to you, but your mind is just in the way, you need to make a commitment. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, He is faithful to keep that which we commit 
unto him against that day. No committing, no keeping. You've got to make a commitment. Commitments are very, very important. You need to just drive a stake in the ground and say, I'm not moving from this. Don't try it. Just do it. When I did that, it cost me. I got reclassified. I got drafted. I got sent to Vietnam. I could have stopped somewhere along the way and said, whoops, King's X, I'm going to go back and join school. Will you give me my deferment back? But man, I never did that. Once I made that decision, I just took it and whatever the consequences were, I went with it. And there's some of you that need to do this and make a commitment. So I want to ask you, if you're one of those that you know in your heart that God has spoken to you, but you got all of these reasonings, and now tonight after hearing this, you're willing to make a commitment and just commit yourself to it. I want you to stand right where you are, and I'm going to pray for you and help you to just stand on that commitment. If that's you, I want you to stand right where you are, and we're going to pray, and I believe that God's going to keep that which you commit. You might be making a commitment that, you know what, it's not time now. Maybe God's telling you not to come. Well, that's still, you need to follow what's in your heart. I'm really pushing the school because I know how powerful it is, but you know, I'm not, whatever it is that God's telling you, you need to make a commitment and quit wavering on it and do what you feel is in your heart. Anybody else? You know what? I'm going to specifically pray that this prayer won't work for you if you aren't standing. I feel like somebody here is going to try and bootleg this prayer. You don't want to stand and publicly admit this, but you do need the benefits. See, I knew you were there. It's not going to work unless you stand. You're going to have to make a commitment. You're going to have to do something. Anybody else? Somebody says, man, this is short notice. This is an important decision. Let me think about it. That's when you get into trouble. You just need to follow what's in your heart. Do it. Anyone else? Praise the Lord. Father, I thank you for all of these that are standing. Father, thank you for these people. And I believe that you're speaking to them in their heart. We believe that we are your sheep, that we do hear your voice, that you've already spoken to us. And we don't want to be like these two disciples on the road to Emmaus that are reasoning and trying to figure out how could this happen when all of the facts are staring us in the face. Father, we want to perceive by faith. We want to have the Holy Spirit just give us this perception. We want to follow this. We want to walk by faith. And so, Father, these people have humbled themselves here tonight. To the best of our ability, Father, we're saying that you have given us direction and we are not going to lean under our own understanding, but we are going to follow that direction. We make a commitment right now to follow through with what you've spoken in our heart, and we are not going to go and let reason. We ask your wisdom to be able to deal with whatever the details are, but we will stay committed to doing what you've told us to do. Father, as you give us the ability to understand, we are going to follow through and we will do this and we will follow your leadership. We just make a commitment right here and say that this is coming to pass. 
in the name of Jesus. And Father, we praise you by faith right now, looking past all of the obstacles, and we look at the potential rewards. Father, at the changed lives, all of these people that have given testimonies about how you've been so faithful to them and how you've done things better for them, all these great things, we believe that you are doing that for each one of us. Father, we thank you that as we make this decision, that, Father, this is going to be the best decision we've ever made. And that, Father, we are going to see your power come through. We praise you by faith. We anticipate a day that we stand here and we give testimony about your faithfulness and how you came through and how this is just wonderful. Father, we praise you in advance. And we stand on that scripture that you are faithful to keep that which we commit. We make a commitment right now and we believe that you hold us to it. And Father, when we leave this place and the carnal world begins to once again surround us, that we will hold to this commitment that the Holy Spirit will bring this back to our remembrance and that, Father, we're going to follow through on this. And so we thank you for it. And we agree and we receive it and thank you in advance that this is going to be a life changer in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all agree? Praise the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. I tell you what, if you believe that, I think that you are going to see some awesome, awesome things come to pass. I can't say that it will all be roses, but it will be worth it. Amen. The devil is probably pushing the panic button right now about we got to stop this. What can I do? And you know, there may be some attacks along the way, but you stand and I guarantee you, you'll win and you'll see awesome, awesome things come to pass. Amen. Gary, have you got anything else here tonight? You know, I want to speak to those of you who are watching by the internet that you may not have been here physically, but you know, I know God's speaking to people right now that you've got the same decision and it may not only be about coming to school or something, but if God's speaking to you, these same principles will work in every single area of your life. Amen. So praise God. I believe that we've done what God wanted us to do tonight. Remember, we've got breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning, and then we start. And who's up first? Is it Barry? Barry is up first. Praise and worship. Barry, and then a question and answer time. So anyway, 7 o'clock in the morning for continental breakfast. God bless you. You're dismissed.